I want to begin today with a poem that Kim shared with me last week. It is by David White, and it was posted on Parker Palmer's website, a a Quaker writer and educator. I will warn you now that this is the kind of poem that requires a bit of time and space to sit with, the kind whose meanings do not always come quickly. So I will return to it later. But for now, with the image in your mind of the last bit of that scripture text, of this frightened servant cast into outer darkness, surrounded by weeping and gnashing of teeth, while that's still fresh, I want you to hear this poem. It is entitled, Sometimes. Sometimes if you move carefully through the forest, breathing like the ones in the old stories who could cross a shimmering bed of leaves without a sound, you come to a place whose only task is to trouble you with tiny but frightening requests. Conceived out of nowhere, but in this place beginning to lead everywhere. Requests to stop what you are doing right now and to stop what you are becoming while you do it. Questions that can make or unmake a life. Questions that have patiently waited for you. Questions that have no right to go away. Now Palmer, in reflecting on this poem, writes, Sometimes as I rest in nature's beauty, all my urgent questions go away. A lovely experience, but one that provides only temporary relief. At other times, as the poem says, I come to a place where my questions come back. Questions about how I am living my life. Questions I ignore at my own peril. I mean questions like these. Why do you stay hooked on concerns that would disappear in an instant if you knew you were going to die tomorrow? Know that you will die tomorrow, whether tomorrow is 24 hours or 20 years from now. Why don't you shake off those worries? and embrace whatever brings new life to you and the people around you. Indeed, those are the kinds of questions that have no right to go away, that wait for us like a man with a large amount of money who sneaks up on us, places the money in the palm of our hand, and says in the words of another poet, Mary Oliver, tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? His moment comes, you know. Perhaps unexpectedly, but still there it is. He's holding the talenton in his hand. That's the Greek word that's translated into the English talent. It often leads to confusion about its meaning. 
It has nothing to do with a talent as a special gift or skill and everything to do with money and lots of it. One talenton was worth a day laborer's wages for 15 years. That's just one, which in today's money would be worth anywhere from half a million to a million dollars. So do you see the moment this man has in the palm of his hand? Right there, an extravagant opportunity. And he's afraid. He will say later he was afraid of the man who gave him the opportunity because he felt that that man was a harsh man, reaping where he did not sow. But truly all we really know of the master in the parable up to this point is that he is trusting and welcoming and generous. He has given over into the hands of these servants, even the servant with just one talent, a vast amount of money. Two of the servants quickly get to work, as you heard, investing the money, but not the third, not him. He stands there with that opportunity in the palm of his hand. And fear overtakes him, freezes him, causes him to play it safe and guarantee that this talent, this enormous amount of money entrusted to him would remain secure. He digs a hole, see him there, hands pushing aside the dirt, looking around with suspicious and fearful eyes to make sure no one can see what he's doing, and then dropping it in and covering it back up quickly, packing the dirt so it looks undisturbed. I wonder how often over that stretch of time, before the master returned, he went back out there to that spot to check on it, to make sure it was still there, still safe, Anxious, worried, fearful. Now we've lived with Jesus' parables in Matthew throughout the fall long enough now to know a couple of things about him. Matthew loves the phrase, uh, loves the phrase, darkness, outer darkness, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. There's eight different parables that end with that phrase. And we've lived with Jesus' parables in Matthew long enough to know by now that this is not just a story about a scared servant being skittish with his master's money. Instead, I think it's a meditation on fear. The kind of fear that can paralyze people and churches. The kind of fear that drains the joy out of life for the sake of the most superficial kind of safety. By the time Matthew wrote his gospel, the church he was part of was vulnerable, small, and besieged. They had been tossed out of the synagogues. The temptation for them is to huddle up, to grasp this extravagant gospel that had transformed their lives, and to keep it to themselves. The mere thought of going out to Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost ends of the earth, the idea of publicly living and sharing this gospel was a risky venture. It could end up annihilating their community of faith. It could end up with themselves losing their lives. 
much of Matthew's gospel then, and certainly the string of parables we've been hearing over the last several weeks, is encouraging the church to go out into that place of risk, their lanterns filled with oil, and shine. In the Sermon on the Mount that begins this gospel, Jesus said about the church, you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. Do not cover up your light. Do not let your salt lose its flavor. You know in that sermon he goes on to say, if someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to him the other as well. He goes on to say, love your enemies. Now he says to them, this gospel that you have heard, you, you little group of disciples, so worried about your future, fearful and uncertain, You are the inheritors of a gift beyond calculation. Whether it's five talents or two talents or one talent, it is all extravagant, it is all generous, it is all yours, grace upon grace. The talent in the end isn't really about money or the talents and gifts we possess, but about the God to whom the world belongs including all of the world's resources and gifts, and to whom you and I belong. The questions to the disciples then and now is what we will do with this gift. The answer to that question determines how we use all the other gifts. And I think that our, the way we view the giver of the gift makes all the difference in the world. Some people see God and they only see judgment and fear. Several years ago, I was standing in the Starbucks line and I had my collar on quite inadvertently. I had forgotten it was on and I guess that's what prompted the person behind me to uh, call me father. And I responded, no, I'm not a father Well, I I am a father, which is the reason, among others, I'm not a father. (laughs) And I said, I'm a Presbyterian pastor. And then he proceeded to ignore all of that and treated me as a father and gave me his confession. (laughs) He said, I grew up Catholic, but I gave all that up when when I grew up. God was just too doom and gloom and judgment. So I just try to be nice to other people and take care of my family. And it was time for me to order, so I just gave him ten Hail Marys and asked for a venti bold roast. I've thought about that conversation a few times over the years, and I've had that conversation a few times over the years in different forms. I now wish I had found a way to say something like this. You know, you can still dig that talent up. You can still dig it up. There's more, so much more. Do we recognize the grace we have been given? Do we trust the giver enough to live lives of generosity and hope and courage? 
knowing that we love and live and give as those whom God loved first. I was afraid, he said. I was afraid. So I hid your money in the ground. I think the root of the fear is the man's lack of thanksgiving, his cramped view of the master, and thus of the gift. Because he is so consumed with worry and fear, he does not receive the grace with, with gratitude. And without gratitude, our lives and our churches can become fearful and resentful and clutching and inward-looking. Without gratitude, we bury ourselves in the ground in the mistaken assumption that that will keep us safe. And indeed, we may be safe in the most superficial sense of that word but we will not be alive in that posture all we see is darkness and weeping and gnashing of teeth around every corner and so words do fail me sometimes to say how grateful I am to serve among a people in this congregation who live however imperfectly, into this posture of thanksgiving. In a time when so many communities of faith are giving in to fear, fear of losing members, fear of shrinking budgets, fear of the other, this congregation steps out again and again into spaces of risk and vulnerability among people very different from ourselves, people who are reeling from disasters without or within, suffering from hunger, yearning for good news of welcome and hospitality and inclusion. I'm filled with thanksgiving and wonder at the ways you use your talents. The poem at the beginning of the sermon, however, invites not just the journey of a community of faith, but also an inner journey to be defined by a willingness to step into a place of risk, to set aside fear and worry for the sake of life. We're just a few days away from Thanksgiving. Most of the children and youth are out of school. I suspect the days ahead will provide opportunity I hope the days ahead will provide opportunity for you to slow down, maybe even take a walk in the woods, or at least in the neighborhood. And in that space, my prayer for you and for me is that you will encounter questions there that have patiently waited for you and that have no right to go away. May you take them in the palm of your hand and see them for the gifts that they are, these questions, inviting you to go deeper, to release fear, to live while you yet live, this one wild and precious life, to live, as Palmer says, as if you knew you would die tomorrow. See yourself standing there, holding this gift. See us as a community standing together 
holding this gift. This is your moment. And for God's sake and for the sake of the world, do not bury it in the ground. Amen.